Well, it was very fun during the summer to spend a summer in the Psalms. It's rare that we take so much time in the Psalms, and there's so much richness there. Uh, but, uh, but like a lot of people, I'm kind of a New Testament guy, and I'm, I'm happy and eager this fall to get back into the New Testament. And I've been looking forward to one day preaching through uh, the book of Ephesians for a long, long time. That day's come, so I'm excited uh, to be able to do that this fall. Uh, I'm excited for us as a church. The, the book of Ephesians is, is just a glorious book. It's just glorious. Uh, John Stott, uh, the British theologian and commentator, there are lots of commentaries on Ephesians, lots of them. I probably have a dozen, and it doesn't scratch the surface, and I won't look at all of them over the next several months. But John Stott says that Ephesians is a marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications. It's that, imp- that implications, it's just two words, but it's like volumes, right? The implications of the good news of Jesus Christ for the church. That's a pretty tall order for a book or a letter, just six-chapter letter, to do all of that. Stott goes on to say nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenge to consistency in life. I think that's, I think that's what it's going to do to us. We're going to be caused to be in awe and to wonder at the plan of God. We're going to, we're going to be moved to worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to be challenged to live lives consistent with the calling that we have in Christ for the glory of God. Not to us, not to us, but to your name, O Lord, belongs the glory, the glory forever. I think Ephesians is timely and appropriate for us as a church because I think it's timely and appropriate for the entire evangelical church in America. And here's why. Ephesians demands the destruction of our most cherished idol, ourselves. It does so by awing us and then by urging us to devote ourselves to something glorious, something eternal, something anchored in the gospel purposes of God. To tear down the false places where we worship our own will and to be caught up in the temple of God with Christ our foundation, and filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's dig in. Let's dig into this great book. If you would, uh, take your Bible, uh, the Word of Ephesians. Take also your sermon outline. It's on back of the worship bulletin. This is, a, this is a great help for you to follow along in the sermon outline and take any notes, maybe write down some questions. This will be incredibly useful in your home fellowships this year. Uh, as you participate in that. I hope that you find these sermon outlines helpful and useful. Um, I find them helpful because when I'm sitting in your position, uh, I want to make sure that I stay awake. And by following along in the outline and taking some notes here and there, helps me to stay awake. Uh, and helps, helps me as a preacher from not rebuking you as a congregation during the middle of the sermon. And so <laughs> that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. If you look on your sermon outline, you'll see this sermon theme. It's kind of long because it really is a a synopsis of the whole book. We're looking at Ephesians, the greeting and an introduction to the entire book this morning. But as a result of God's eternal plan and glorious purpose, all who are united to Christ by faith are united to one another as fellow saints and members of the household of God. As such, we must walk in a manner worthy of Christ, maintaining the unity of the local church by living new lives in love, 
light and wisdom, thus standing firm against the devil. So let's begin with these first two verses, our jumping off point in Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins introducing himself as the author. This is the Apostle Paul, Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. The scriptures introduce us to Paul at the end of Acts chapter 7. His Hebrew name was Saul, and he gave his approval to the stoning of the death of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 8, he began his campaign of deadly persecution against the Christian church. Yes, this is the man whom we're listening to now, who wrote this soaring theological work, Uh, that enlightens us so greatly. But on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, he met the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared to him as a blinding light, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, from the very beginning of his Christian walk, not a moment before, but at the very beginning of his Christian walk, Paul understood the union of Christians with Christ and Christ with his church such that when the church is persecuted, Christ says, why are you persecuting me? At that same time, Jesus granted Paul saving faith to believe and forgiveness of his sins and called him to be his apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. A couple quick definitions. Who are the Gentiles? Well, everyone who's not a Jew. This is a, this is a word used in Scripture. We have the Jews as God's chosen people. All of the other peoples, all of the other nations are the Gentile peoples, the Gentile nations. Sometimes the Bible will use the word Greek in place of Gentile. So that's what a Gentile is. And what's an apostle? Well, the word simply means a sent one, uh, a messenger. Paul is going to be... Jesus' chosen messenger to all of the other peoples, the Gentile peoples. So Paul is the one person chosen by the will of God to be Christ's gospel messenger to the Gentiles. He's also the founder of this church, the planter of this church, if you will, in Ephesus. On his third missionary journey, carrying the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, Paul was passing through the region of Asia Minor, today it's Turkey, and came upon the city of Ephesus. This is recorded for us in Acts chapter 19. And Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years, three solid years, preaching the gospel, such that Luke records in Acts chapter 19, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles, because of Paul's gospel-proclaiming ministry there in Ephesus. They are the recipients of the letter, the churches in and around Ephesus. That's who Paul's writing to here. There are the saints and the faithful. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word saint means set apart. These are the ones who are set apart to God. They have been set apart to be faithful in Christ Jesus. They are the Christians. They're the Christians in Ephesus. Paul is writing to the believers in the churches he founded in and around Ephesus. 
Paul's ministry in Ephesus was fruitful, and it was far-reaching, far beyond the town and city limits itself, but into the region beyond. So a couple things about Ephesus. You may already know that Paul's church-planting strategy was to preach the gospel in a large city. Ephesus was the capital, the Roman capital of Asia. And then extend the gospel out to the surrounding cities and villages. And Ephesus was a large city, about 200 to 250,000 people at that time. It was the leading Roman city and the capital in that area. It was, uh, it was a seaport off the Mediterranean. The Caister River would move inland and, uh, and form a harbor, and that's where, that's where Ephesus was. It also had, uh, was, a, was a major crossroads. Three major east-west crossroads came to Ephesus. So having that crossroads of trade and, a, and being a port city, uh, it was an economically prosperous city. It was a great town. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city. People of many different ethnicities lived there. It had a significant Jewish population, maybe as many as ten to 20,000, with multiple synagogues in the city and in the area. And when Paul left Ephesus to carry the name of Christ to Macedonia, which he would do at the end of the three years, it had a growing Christian population with multiple house churches in the city and then others around in the surrounding environs. So what's the occasion and the purpose for Paul's letter? Well, as to the occasion of the letter, Paul left Ephesus in 55 A.D., in 57 A.D., Paul had a brief meeting with the elders of the churches in Ephesus on his way from Macedonia to Jerusalem. We can read about that in Acts chapter 20. Shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, Paul was arrested by the Jews and then placed in Roman custody. And they transferred him to Rome. And so from 60 to 62 A.D., Paul was a prisoner of the state under house arrest in Rome. That's where he's writing from. So somewhere probably in the latter half of that, in 61 to 62 A.D., Paul writes this letter to Ephesus, and it's six or seven years or so after his three-year ministry there. So he's writing to both saints he knows from his three years in Ephesus and saints he's not met who have become Christians in the six or seven years of his absence. So what is Paul's purpose in writing to the church in Ephesus? Well, the need for Paul to write is not as clear as it is in some of his other letters. When you think of the letter to the Galatians, the Galatians had so quickly forgotten the gospel, so Paul writes and asks them, what's happened? The Corinthians were approving of adulterous sin, so Paul wrote to ask, what are you doing? And the Colossians were adopting false philosophies, so Paul writes to them and says, what are you thinking? There were urgent reasons, emergency reasons, to write letters quickly and to send them out to these churches. But this letter to the Ephesians is actually very positively worded. There doesn't seem to be any obvious rebukes or strong corrections to take place in the church. No emergency situation that has caused Paul to write in this way. And so Ephesians is unique in that way. He's freed from this duty to correct a problem, to simply write these glorious truths on his heart. And his truths span all of the cosmos. God's great plan for all things. Salvation in Christ himself. 
Salvation in the church, the people of God gathered together, and how they fit in God's plan for the entire cosmos. It's really a glorious letter. Ephesians and Colossians are very similar, except that Colossians is much shorter. It seems to have been written uh, to Colossians to address the false teachers there, but Paul just, when he gets to Ephesians, he just, after writing Colossians, he just kind of meditates on the themes that he's just written and expounds on them, and it's glorious. Now, it's not to say that the church in Ephesus is without its problems and without its challenges. It's just that they seem to fit in the everyday context of living in Ephesus. Those challenges are the challenges that all churches face, that we face. There's the problem of Jew and Gentile believers getting along in the church. People who are different getting along in the church. When their culture has trained them to be hostile towards one another. And then there's the challenge of transformation. People leaving their sinful lifestyles, even though everybody lived that way, and living as saints instead, set apart to righteousness, being devoted to Christ, living in a fallen world. But Paul addresses these as common challenges, not as specific emergencies. It's a general letter rather than a specific letter in that way. You'll notice that a Ephesians lacks the many personal references to friends and co-workers that are in all of Paul's other letters. That's because this letter is intended to be a circular letter, meaning it was intended to be circulated. Paul sent this letter to the church in Ephesus, and from there, it would be copied and circulated to the other churches in town and then around the surrounding area of Asia Minor. His His mail campaign was kind of like his church planting campaign. It started in the big city where the populace was and then would spread out. With this in mind, Clinton Arnold, another commentator, writes, Paul is struggling in writing Ephesians with all of his might to see the lives of his converts transformed by the power of the gospel and no longer conforming to the trends of secular culture. Sounds like a letter we need to read. I love that quote. Because that's why Ephesians is so relevant to us. We need to stop conforming to the trends of our secular culture and be transformed by the gospel of Christ. Insert congregational amen. Oh, excellent. And to do that, we must understand our new identity in Christ Paul loves that theme in the book of Ephesians. You should love that theme, being in Christ. We are united in Christ together as saints in his church. Those are the two big things that you're going to notice in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The glory of being in Christ and the glory of being in Christ's church and the purpose that God has for Christ's church. So let's dig in a little deeper with the survey. We're just going to walk through the book pointing out a few things, very few things. We'll get into these things much deeper as we go on. But a few things uh, that, uh, that uh, are important and span the book. And everyone, every commentator agrees the book is split right in half. The first three chapters are about what God has done for us in Christ. The second three chapters are about how we should then live in Christ as his church. And all of it for the glory of God. So let's begin 
I want to, I'll begin this way. I'll just read one sentence. I'll just read the very first sentence of Ephesians after the greeting, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So in, in the Greek manuscript, that's just one sentence. That's just one sentence. And it's absolutely glorious, isn't it? What an opening. It's absolutely glorious. It's absolutely Trinitarian. God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that there is to be had. How? Well, first, in himself. Before creation, he chose to make us holy in Christ. He also pre-decided that we would be adopted as his sons and daughters in Christ. Secondly, he blessed us in Christ. Some form of the words, in Christ appear in Ephesians over 30 times. In this one letter, it's kind of a theme. In Christ. It's through the sacrifice of God's Son that our, that our sins are forgiven. The blood of His beloved Son was the price of our redemption. The richness of God's grace was lavished upon us. How? In Jesus the Son. And it is Christ that we are united to God and one another. All of that happens in Christ. And in Christ... God predecided to give us an inheritance. Good news. To hope in Christ is to have Christ and to participate in Christ's glory. And thirdly, he has blessed us with his Holy Spirit. When we heard and believed the gospel, when God set us apart for himself, when the Holy Spirit applied the blood of Christ to those in Christ according to his will, God placed a seal upon our souls. The indwelling Holy Spirit of God himself. He's the seal. The Holy Spirit serves as a guarantee of our inheritance so that we may know with confidence that we will receive our promised inheritance. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to doubt it or wonder. And the Holy Spirit serves as a security seal on our souls. 
He is a seal that the devil cannot break. The Holy Spirit will see to it without fail that we will be to the praise and the glory that we have in Christ Jesus. Which takes us back to the beginning of the sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to bless Him. To bless Him is to praise Him. Paul is blessing God for what He has done, and he's instructing us to praise God for all that He has done in Christ. When we read that one sentence, we remember that those are all the reasons why we're to praise Him. That's what we've been called to do. And that's why the very next thing that Paul does is pray. Beginning in verse 15. He prays for the saints in Ephesus. Here's what he says in verse 17. I'm not going to read the whole book today. We're just going to look at various verses. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul's praying that for the church. And part of the knowledge of Christ that Paul wants us to know is that it is God's plan not just to unite us in Christ, but to make Christ the main point of everything. Paul writes, here's the main point of everything. God's going to sum up, God's going to bring together, God's going to unite everything in Christ. Which means you don't want to be found outside of Christ. So that the next thing that Paul addresses is how we sinners come to be found in Christ. The power of salvation is in the first half of chapter 2. Salvation comes but one way. Salvation comes but one way. It is by the grace of God, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved by your own works, by your own doing, by your own wonderful personality and clever conversation. You cannot be saved those ways. You cannot earn God's approval in anything you do or say or think or imagine. God's approval can only be given. That's how approval works. Your best moral effort, according to the Scriptures, is riddled through with sin. The best you can do is sin. The wages of your sins, what they have earned you, is death. You see, you are already spiritually dead. You must abandon yourself. You must abandon yourself and you must appeal to God. He is the judge and he is the judge who has mercy to give. And he will give it to all who will unite with him through faith in Jesus Christ. He will do it. Christ whose blood is the ransom payment, Paul writes, for sinners. Christ who is the gift of God to the saints. This is Christ. This is the power of salvation in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This Christ who brings peace with God for the individual also brings peace among individuals. He brings peace to the church. The peace of Christ in the church we find in 
the second half of chapter 2. And as I mentioned earlier, there were significant, though a significant Jewish community in Ephesus. And they were legally, by Rome, allowed to practice their religion. But all of Asia Minor around them were polytheistic. They worshipped pagan gods, and as many of them as they wanted, and not a god that claimed to be the only god, the one that the Jews worshipped. So even though it was legal for them to be Jewish and to practice the Jewish religion, they were still persecuted. They were still persecuted by the majority Gentile culture. So when Gentiles were saved into the church, they brought their cultural prejudices with them. And just as Jesus saves people into his church today, and we don't realize our wrong thinking, our sinful attitudes and prejudices, until we hold them up to the light of God's truth, God's word. New Christians are so fun. Because they, they come to this enlightened, saving faith in Christ, but they've, they've still got this life, right, of sin. And they're like, well, can I still do this? No, you can't do that. Oh, okay, got it. Am I allowed to still do that? No, you can't do that. Okay, great, great. Hey, this seems, I used to do this all the time, but it seems like maybe I shouldn't. You're right, you shouldn't. You've been enlightened. You've, you've held your life up to the light of Christ and the word of God, and you're saying, there's something different now. But until, until these Gentiles who live Gentile lifestyles are taught to understand not to hate their Jewish brothers and sisters in the church now, They've got to be taught that. They've got to learn that. They've got to work it out. And so Paul explains this truth about the church in verse 19 of chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. This unity, this love for the brethren, is critical to God's plan. which is what Paul reveals in, as the mystery of God in the New Testament in chapter 3. Paul describes his gospel ministry in chapter 3 as Christ's apostle to the Gentiles as, as revealing a mystery. Uh, the mystery is not hidden anymore. Now it's revealed here in Paul. What was not known before Christ came has now been revealed. That not only is God saving sinners from among the Jews, his chosen people in the Old Covenant, but also from among the Gentiles. That's a new thought. That's a new thing. This is how Paul puts it in chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I can't feel... Or help but feel that we're not, we're not very taken aback by that mystery. Because the mystery was revealed 2,000 years ago. So we've been living with the mystery not being a mystery. We've known it. We have 2,000 years of church history in which Gentiles have come to salvation through the church's proclamation of the gospel. But this is a huge revelation at the time. This is a huge revelation of the will of God worth more than just a couple hallelujahs. And if you're a Gentile, if you're not of a descendant of Abraham, you should be shouting hallelujah. That the gospel's for the Gentiles. 
But there's even more to be revealed, Paul says. And this should get our attention because it has to do with his church, even this church. God's plan for his church is to make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's plan for his church is that his church would reveal something, the manifold wisdom of God, and that the church would reveal that manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's awesome. This ought to get our attention. I mean, you can understand that, right? You've got it, right? Let me put it this way for now. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the living, working evidence of God's plan from before the foundation of the world to save a people in His Son and to make them holy and to sum up all of the cosmos in its totality in Christ and for His glory. That's our job. That's why we're here. By the grace of God, by the will of God, that's why we're here. That's the plan for Christ's church. This is huge. It should feel huge. It is the plan and will of God. And Paul wants us to know, we as saints, and know that we as his church are right now engaged in bringing glory to God in the heavenly realms. It's what we're doing. It's what we're supposed to be doing. And so Paul prays for the church. He prays for the church and then he, he just can't hold it in. He just breaks out in praise and doxology. So doxology, transliteration of a Greek word, doxa, to give praise, to give glory. Paul's writing a letter and all of a sudden it's as if he just stops and just, praise God, this is glorious. I can't even hold it in except his pen's still working. And so he writes it right into the letter. Paul just cannot help himself. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can think or ask according to the power at work in him within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout the generations forever and forever. Amen. That's what Paul writes. He just can't help himself. In revealing the mystery hidden for ages of God's plan for the glory of Christ and his church, Paul breaks into this doxology, praising God for what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. Now, after giving us this glorious theology that soars on heights as if held up by eagle's wings, Paul turns to the implications of the will of God and his plan for Christ's church. Knowing these things, how then shall we live? Well, Paul tells us beginning in chapter 4. We're to live united. 
as Christ's church. We're to live as one body. The first thing that Paul addresses is the unity of believers in the church. Having been united in Christ, we are now to strive to maintain this unity that has been given to us. We've mentioned this before recently. We don't actually bring unity in the church. It's given to us. We're united in Christ, but we are called to maintain that unity. Having been united in Christ, we're to strive to maintain it. Paul makes unity sound like such an obvious goal. Nothing could be more obvious for a church to do than to maintain its unity. It just seems so obvious. Listen to chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There's one body. It's the church. And one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all. And in all, unity must be the nature of the church. Oneness, unity, it's the nature of the body of Christ, that we're one. And so, wanting the church to remain one, Christ has given gifts to the church. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 7. Christ has given gifts. What gifts do you think... Christ would give to his church whom he sees as his bride. What might he give to his bride? What kinds of gifts would he give to those whom he wants to remain united in him? What gifts would be helpful for that? What kind of gifts would he give to his body, his own body, whose parts he wants to remain united? In verse 11 of chapter 4, Paul says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. They were the gifts Jesus saw fit to give to the church. To do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, sounds good, but to what end? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Hmm. Men who teach the Word of God are a gift to those who want unity with Christ. Men who shepherd the flock of God according to the word of God are a gift to those who want to live as set apart and faithful saints of God. That's the gift. And the reason for that gift, that teaching, that always putting the gospel forward has the purpose of transformation. Gospel transformation. If the purpose of the church is to reflect the holiness and the glory of God, and it is, then each of us need to live out the new lives we've been given in Christ. This is what Paul says in chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. You and I are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt 
through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, we have a new and righteous life to live in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Stop living your old corrupt life. Stop listening to your old deceitful desires if you're in Christ. Christ has called you to live in unity with one another in His church. He has given you His Word and His Spirit and teachers and preachers to help you maintain your unity with one another. So pay attention. Be diligent. Do it. Walk together in unity as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. What a glorious calling. Don't be like that anymore. Because you're not them. You're mine. Walk like you're mine, Christ says. You remember that the test of our unity with one another in the church is evidence of God's manifold wisdom in salvation that brings glory to God from the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. <laughs> the witnesses, the people looking at the church and going, hmm, aren't just people out here. There are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places who are to look down upon Christ's church and say, hmm, that's the manifold wisdom of God taking place. We, the church, are walking in unity for the glory of God. Why should you, why should you make the effort to walk in unity with him or her? Because it's for the glory of God. That's God's plan. And Paul gives us three ways to walk in unity together. These are in chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And I'm just going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to read these verses and just let them speak for themselves. We're to walk in love, beginning in chapter 4, verse 31. Paul writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Walk in unity by walking together in love. We're also to walk as light, chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Walk in unity by walking together in the light. And we're to walk in wisdom. In verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk by unity, or in unity, by walking together in wisdom. Then Paul goes on to give us the wisdom of God in our relationships. There are three relationships that Paul wants to give us the wisdom of God in so that we don't have to guess. We don't have to try to discern what pleases him in these areas. They're stated for us. We don't have to try to discern what's pleasing to God in these key relationships where the unity of believers is always being tested. For instance, in marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the will of God for husbands and wives in the Lord. In family, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God's stated and clear will for families is in the Lord. Paul also addresses the institution of slavery in his time and place because a huge percentage of people in the church were slaves and some were masters. So he tells bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would, Christ. And he tells masters, do the same to them, meaning that they will be held accountable for their actions, good or evil, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the will of God in these three relationships for Christians in the church. As you know, they make little sense to those who are outside of the church. Because they are foolish and do not submit to Christ and cannot submit to others in the Lord. They don't follow the will of God. Well, that's the end of, of my summation, except the very last bit before Paul's sign-off. Paul recognizes that there's a battle taking place. It's a battle between good and evil. It's a battle between the people of God and the devil himself. And so he tells us to put on the armor of God. We love that chapter. You may already be familiar with that chapter. So that we would... 
in Christ and as people in Christ's church united stand against the devil's lies that we might be united and have peace and wield the sword that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that others might be saved. And to pray for that. So, how can we apply these things? It's just been a survey this morning, but how can we look at the book of Ephesians in total? How can we look at these things that Paul is teaching to us, these things that have been revealed as the plan of God for his church? Two things. I just want to point out obedience and prayer. Obedience and prayer. You see, Paul's central command for the church in Ephesians is found in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It's kind of that transition point, right? From, from here's what God has done for us, now here's how you're to live, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Read along with me. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul's hinting at a couple things. He's hinting at the fact that he's in prison in Rome, but also that he's there for Christ's sake. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Paul's central command is found here, to be united in Christ and to be united to one another in Christ in the church. It's his command. Maintain this. If you've got this, keep it going. If it's weakening, strengthen it. If it's doing well, do, do still more. To maintain this unity and the bond of peace in the Spirit. You see, God has created a new community through Christ. That's what Paul's describing with new standards to live by. We live in unity and peace with one another, set apart for purity, and completely unlike the fallen world around us. They're the normal ones out there. We're the weird ones. We don't look like that. We're gloriously different. We have power to live fruitful relationships in the home and power to stand against the devil's lies and deceits. If you've been feeling powerless, this study of Ephesians is going to help you. Because that power that Paul says we have is the exact same power that God exercised to raise Christ from the dead. It's resurrection, life-giving power. But Paul admits, it's a fight. It's a fight. So how can we live this new life that we've been given in Christ? What help do we have to walk in love and light and wisdom? Is there something in God's plan to help us, to make us bold and confident? To make us eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace which we've received from Him? I think there is. 
I think there is. It's the fullness of Christ. Four times, four times in this letter, Paul either describes or prays for the fullness of God. I'm, we didn't read every word, so you might not have known that. In, in chapter 1, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, Paul prays for the fullness of God, which makes total sense. If God's revealed goal is to sum up everything, to bring everything together in the fullness of Christ, which is what he said it was. And this fullness, though not mentioned in chapter 2, is pictured perfectly by Paul in chapter 2 as believers being the temple of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit. This theme of fullness is like a watermark on the background of every page in the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. And he, God, put all things under his feet, that's Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, that's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We were to be the fullness of Christ. Christ who fills all in all. Christ is the head of his body, the church, and Christ fills his church with himself. We should pray to receive the fullness of Christ. Asking for every spiritual blessing that God has given to us in his beloved son Christ. James writes that the problem with the church is that we have not because we ask not. Do you remember that? Let's ask God to fill us with the fullness that is Christ himself. He has decreed that he will do it. In chapter 4, verse 10, <clears throat> he, Jesus, who descended, is the one who ascended far above all the heavens. For what purpose? That he might fill all things. Jesus who came down from heaven and took on flesh to become the once for all sacrifice for our sin is now ascended at the right hand of God the Father serving as our great high priest interceding on our behalf in his mediatorial role he is filling all things with himself. Paul says that's what he's doing. Oh my goodness, we should pray that he would fill us with himself. If that's what he's already doing. We should ask him to fill this church with himself. If that's what he's up there, and that's his purpose as our great high priest, and it is. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Paul is praying for the church. What's he praying? To know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That, you're, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Apostle Paul is praying for God to fill us on our behalf. He's asking God to fill us with his fullness. After reading that, could we possibly be so unmoved or so lazy as to not pray that same prayer for ourselves? I want to be filled with God, but I'm just too, I'm too, just too disconnected to ask for it. I'll just let Paul pray for it. Paul prayed for it, but Paul's gone. Why shouldn't we pray the same prayer? Paul wanted the churches to be filled with the fullness of God. 
Surely we can join the apostle in his prayer for us. It's a bold prayer, isn't it? God, give me your fullness. It's a bold prayer. To know the love of Christ beyond what we are even able to comprehend. Okay, that's overflowing. (laughs) Filled with the knowledge of the love of Christ beyond what I can comprehend, which means there's even more that I don't even know about. And to be filled with the very fullness of God himself. What would happen to us if God answered that prayer? Oh my. I hope we find out. And in chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The world offers filling, doesn't it? Just go be filled with wine, the world says. But the result is drunkenness and debauchery cirrhosis of the liver and the judgment of God. Instead, ask God to be filled with His Holy Spirit. Ask God to be filled with Him. Why not do that? When the Holy Spirit fills the church, we will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and to everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. (laughs) Can you imagine rulers and authorities in the heavenly places looking down upon us And seeing that. Can you imagine us being a church that reflects the manifold wisdom of God's salvation? Not just to the people around us. Well, that's our mission. But also fulfilling God's purpose that we would reveal that to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. (laughs) That somehow we're part of the battle being fought there by our living faithfully here. Wow. A church that worships God from deep in their hearts, a church of abundant thanksgiving, a church in which Christ Jesus is the main point of everything. Yes. We should pray and ask the Lord to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace towards us sinners. Thank you for new life and the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ because he was faithful. He was faithful to your plan and is himself the glory of God. Father, fill us. 
Fill us with your spirit that we might live lives of purity, that we might not be deterred from maintaining the unity that you've given to us, and that we would worship you, the God who has given us all things. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.